I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's only one word that matters in business in the early days, and that is the word survival. Whilst you're alive, throw yourself 100% into whatever you do and make the best of this wonderful life that we all lead. Hello and welcome to the Boom Podcast by Virgin Media Business. I'm Nikki Beatty and we're back today for another round of Entrepreneurial Tales. In this series, we're meeting the people who've taken it upon themselves to challenge industries with new ways of thinking. Each episode features an original disruptor, a current entrepreneur who's making waves and someone who might represent the future. Today, we're tackling one of the world's oldest business areas, property and housing, but of course with a twist. Joining me in the studio, my first guest today is a figurehead in what's known as the Property Guardian movement. Starting his company, Live in Guardians, in 2010, he spent the past seven years helping companies and individuals with vacant buildings solve problems that arise by leaving a space empty. So instead of falling to squatters or vandalism, Live in Guardians solves the problem by giving people looking for alternatives to expensive rents the opportunity to become guardians of a building, acting as living security guards, so to speak, in return for a cheap place to call home, and often in unusual and amazing spaces. A warm welcome to Living Guardians founder, Arthur Duke. How are you, Arthur? Very well, thank you. So I tried to sum up Living Guardians in a sentence or two there. Perhaps you could quickly elaborate for people who aren't familiar with the concept and what makes your company unique. Certainly. Uh, We basically offer young professionals and key workers the opportunity to protect uh, empty properties from squatters and dereliction by placing them to live in the buildings because the law in the UK currently is you can only squat in an empty building. We get on average 10 to 15 applications a day. A day? A day, yes. It's uh, very popular and we currently have a waiting list of approximately 2,000 applicants. Uh, Before we get too in-depth, I want to introduce our second guest, another property entrepreneur. He's made it his mission to reinvent the way we make homes with a new open source solution. His name is Alistair Parvin and his company is WikiHouse, which might give you a clue. But Alistair, um, over to you to explain what WikiHouse is set up to do. And welcome to Boom, by the way. Thank you very much. Um... In a nutshell, I mean, really, we're just a kind of experimenting, but in a very kind of continuous way. Uh, Really, what we're trying to do is apply digital innovation to how we design and make houses. And the the part of that that we've started at is using digital fabrication machines, which is kind of like a tiny factory that you can fit in your garage, basically, to manufacture houses. Um, And so the idea is that maybe what we can do is is shift the industry from one which is centralised around a small number of huge companies who build, you know, hundreds and thousands of homes Mm. to the idea that we can tool up lots of small companies and citizens even to build homes for themselves. So what stage are you at in the mission? Well, we've developed a technology which is called WikiHouse Ren, which is the first digital building system that can be essentially shared 
as code and coded as code. And then essentially what it does is it, you can fabricate the parts for a house out of plywood. It's essentially like a massive IKEA flat pack. So how many of these operations have actually come to fruition? Has anything been built? Yeah, I mean, the other interesting thing about our project is it's completely open source. So we, from the very beginning, we just put it out there. And it meant that suddenly, almost overnight, there was a kind of this growing community of architects and engineers all the way around, all around the world kind of mm. contributing to the development of this. So there's been hundreds of prototypes in countries all over the world. And that's kind of come through to a point now where we have a kind of, you know, pilot projects and there's a kind of handful of homes and workspaces and things like that. There's some kind of projects, there's a project going on in London, which is building some 25 artist studios. Where? Um, uh, here east, on the Olympic Park, designed wow. by Hawkins Brown Architects. So we're at that kind of point with some really interesting pioneering pilot projects happening with it now. And then we're kind of exploring the next stage, really, which is the kind of software platforms behind this kind of way of thinking to try and take this kind of small-scale production and make it scalable. I mean, I take my hat off to both of you who, in your own ways, are, are doing something to try and solve our our housing crisis. The WikiHouse Foundation's non-profit, though, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, which is a slightly strange decision because everyone expected us to kind of go down the kind of standard, you know, oh, you're a tech company route. But our mission, I mean, we always say, you know, we're not trying to build a, one business, we're trying to build a thousand we're here to try and help the whole industry transition. And it's, you know, the built environment is a really, really complex space. Like, it's a, co it's a problem too complex for one company on its own. So we said, let's actually make a non-profit Open Technology Foundation. And so our job is to try and build the digital infrastructures and to share the open knowledge that then allows us to work with it every business. You call yourself a civic entrepreneur, is that right? Yeah, I don't think any of us ever set out to be entrepreneurs really, we just saw a problem that needed solving and then along the way someone said by the way, do you know you're an entrepreneur? And, and you are both disruptors on certain levels you've taken it upon yourselves to not just innovate within your industries but to completely redesign them. I mean Arthur, did you consciously set out to shake up things with living guardians or, or was it that you saw an opportunity? I previously worked for a property developer and whilst I worked for them, they bought two properties and they had guardians in the properties, which is where I first came across the idea. And when the recession came, the, I was made redundant and I thought, what do I do now? So I went to work for the market leader uh, to learn a bit about the business and they taught me exactly how not to run a uh, guardian company. <laughs> oh dear. They were the sort of first to market and they had virtually the whole market and I think they got a bit lazy and a bit greedy. So I changed the way they certainly did their business. Uh, they used to charge the property owners for the service, whereas mm. we don't. So how do you make your money? Uh, very simply, so we don't charge the owners. The guardians, they would pay a nominal rent or licence fee to us. The way the guardians live turns on the contract that they sign or agreement because they're not tenants. They are only licensees and there is a slight difference between the two or limited tenants' rights, and uh, they can be asked to leave on 28 days' notice. So, Arthur, how do you actually go about finding properties that need guardians? Well, that, that's the hard bit, and that historically has been my job. My main technique is networking. Very important to go to various events where there'll be sort of property owners. There's all sorts of sort of property breakfasts and briefings and a lot of actually sort of charity events where, you know, people in property who generally... I've got sort of a bit of spare money, so we go to all sorts of sort of events and basically try and spread the word because there's lots of people that don't even know that our industry exists. 
So if you are driving along in some random part of London and you see a big disused building, are you always thinking, how can I get my hands on that? Constantly, constantly looking at buildings. I mean, I was going to see a property on Friday and I drove past a former Conservative club on the Finchie Road, and which was all boarded up. I thought, right, I'm going to find out who owns that and uh, try and offer our services to them. And so how many buildings do you have? We're in London making this podcast right now. Let's talk about central London. The majority of our buildings are actually in Zone 1 and Zone 2. Um, we have about 60 buildings in Zone 1 and Zone 2. I mean, are they office blocks or are they old, disused warehouses? Give us an uh, idea the ma- of the range. The majority of the buildings are office blocks that are generally awaiting planning permission to be converted into uh, residential flats or properties. Uh, but we have things from schools, libraries, pubs, all sorts of weird and wonderful buildings, MO, former MOT garages. We make them fit for purpose. The basics are obviously uh, kitchen facilities, showers and a bedroom. Uh, all office buildings, commercial buildings will have toilets and we would literally take out a toilet or several toilets depending on the size of the building because uh, you've got the plumbing and drainage there already and put in a, a shower. So what have been the biggest hurdles over the years in terms of getting into this business? I think it was changing from, you know, my previous background as a lawyer uh, to get into a much more sort of fast-moving environment and dealing with all the issues that come with that. Dealing with people. That's always a big issue. Yes. Um, and these are the people on both sides of your equation or is it the people who are your guardians? I think it's the guardians that are harder. Well, it's like you're the teacher and they're the, you know, the naughty school children and you've always got to be checking that they're behaving themselves and observing the rules because we have very strict rules, particularly about fire and uh, health and safety. You know, obviously Grenfell Fire, Grenfell Tower, sorry, the fire that has really sort of focused everyone's mind, uh, you know, fire safety, and we are very, very strict and always have been on that. You know, there are rules, no candles, no smoking, uh, no fairy lights, anything that is a potential fire hazard, we are very strict on and make sure that, uh, you know, the guardians are living in a safe environment. And fire doors and things like that fire if it's doors, an office closes, building. Fire etc. Fire alarms, yep, very important. So what's changed from the time that you started, whether it's regulations or whether it's, a, you know, a different group, a demographic using it? Talk us through some of that, if you would. I think that the demographic has changed, uh, and that's obviously linked to the housing crisis, that people are not getting on the property ladder till much later in life. I think today it's about 35, 36 when people are buying their first property. Mm-hmm. And if you ask the guardians why they're doing it, 90% of them would give you the same answer. We're saving up for a deposit to buy our own flat. The estate agency industry and landlords, actually, are often subject to a lot of flack and criticism. Housing is an emotive subject. The Guardian industry hasn't been immune to bad press either. So how have you gone about building your reputation and what have you learnt by previous, not mistakes, but ways of doing things? Just to treat the Guardians properly um, because, you know, you can have as many buildings as you like, but if you haven't got any Guardians, you won't be able to secure them. So it's very important and we focus greatly on looking after the Guardians. I mean, some of the buildings that I've seen through your websites, I'd like to live in them. Makes me feel like I'm in a, a, a New York artist space. Now, the first building we ever took on actually was a former uh, warehouse in E1, and mm. it hadn't been uh, it'd been derelict for ten years, so it was a, a blank canvas. And the guys they were set builders who first lived there. How and, how handy! And they made it to look like a you know a Manhattan loft apartment. It was amazing, and sort of flowing from that, you know, lots of people came to see it, and they said, "Oh, I want to live in one of these," and so, so the business grew. 
And communicating that to a public who are a little bit sceptical or maybe even a little bit afraid about this because it's unfamiliar territory, has that been a challenge? Yes, because certain companies have not gone about it in the right way and I think have been a little bit disreputable and sort of put a little stain on the on the whole Guardian industry. So uh, how have you made yourself different? We've always tried to maintain you know, high standards and particularly you know, one of the aspects is if there's a problem with a building, we deal with it, mm. deal with it very quickly. I know from some of our guardians who've lived in other garden companies, they're not so quick to deal with situations. And then is it word of mouth? Absolutely. We have never advertised for guardians since we started. And uh, so we have 10 to, 12, 10 to 15 applications a day. I mean, even last week we had an application from a junior in the, in the Cabinet Office. Alistair, communicating your mission, getting in front of people, publicising your story, that has to be essential, doesn't it, for spreading the world about WikiHouse? Yeah, and for us it kind of happened backwards, actually, because the idea caught so much... I mean, I think it's the same with guardianship. I think because the current situation, the current industry is almost so bad, there's this kind of latent desire for something better, Mm. both people from their own personal perspectives, but also... You know, people looking out the window and saying, no, this isn't right, you know. So actually we were quite, I would like to say fortunate and also under pressure because we got a huge amount of exposure really quickly. And I think we were in that time when it came as a shock. You know, you can get a huge level of exposure without having any money in the bank. Yes. Right? And, and how did that work? How did you get that exposure? Well, all we really did is we just sort of said, and we were, we were thinking, obviously, you know, for a long time about these kind of issues. And then we got invited to do this particular experiment for an event. And we thought, well, what we'll do is we'll just open source all the files. And we'll just put it out there. And, of course, it just picked up and kind of went viral. And before we knew it... Everyone was sort of, oh, yeah, uh, you know. Yeah. And, and of course, you also then have to deal with, you know, people writing these kind of uh, glib headlines, uh, in, actually incorrect headlines, et cetera, et cetera. So people think exposure is a great thing. And there's lots of people who come when you're starting to do any kind of enterprise or effort like this. There's lots of people come offering you exposure. Mm. And we're almost in the opposite position. Which, no, 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 we don't want exposure. Right. And, and we want good exposure. We don't want just any old exposure. So was there, did um, people make mistakes in the way that they were describing what you were doing. Yeah, yeah. Or they just, I mean, I think in order to understand housing, one has to first unlearn everything one thinks one already knows about housing, right? So people say, you know, you get the headlines like, hey, a house you can 3D print. Well, it's not technically 3D printing. It's another form of digital fabrication. And Mm -hmm. most of the forms of digitally fabricating buildings haven't been invented yet, by the way. Um, But 3D printing at that time was the easy headline. Right, right. Um, And then they say, oh, and then you can do it in a day. Well, yes, you can. Oh, and you can do it for £60,000. I'm like, yeah, but that's only the build cost. It doesn't account for the land. So I think we learned the hard way. We really felt like we threw ourselves into the pool and then learned to swim. Right. Uh, Always have an objective strategy and tactics right before you start and make sure you have an ask because if people read about a thing or or excited by a thing they want to know what they can do next Mm -hmm. and actually if there's nowhere to go next they'll get frustrated and do whatever they want to do or think they do and that you can't manage them so i think a good idea is is ideally have something in place that gives people something they can do before you get the exposure because then when the exposure comes you welcome it Mm. rather than seeing it as just a burden on you or you know, just thousands of emails. In terms of, I'll ask you the same question that I asked Alistair. If there is an aspiring entrepreneur in not even necessarily your field, but listening to this podcast right now, in terms of communicating the mission, what advice would you give them? I think it's quite simple. It's hard work and set some goals. I think that's been really important. 
because you have a target to, to aspire to and to hopefully achieve. And if you don't achieve it, you know you haven't achieved it and you'll try a bit harder next time. How have you actually grown your team? Because it started off as just you, didn't it? Just me, it? for 18 and months. For 18 months 18 and now months. it's 25 of 20 you. hours a day or whatever it was. Uh, yeah, there's 25 of us now. That's been quite difficult, actually. Not difficult, challenging to find the, the people that buy into to what we do and um, we've had to have a, a mix of people. We have maintenance people, we have admin people, we have finance people and we have some people that deal with the sort of health and safety side. So it's a, a mix of people. And, and how did you attract them to your business? We've gone through recruitment consultants and they've offered us people who have lasted five minutes. We now use a sort of technique where it's called the colour works and we ask all future uh, members of staff to do this. It's sort of psychometric testing to tell you what type of person they are. Really? Yeah. And we have a mix of different people who all have different skills. So hang on, how does this psychometric testing go? You fill an online questionnaire, it's about 15 questions, and it's just multiple choice answers and they reckon, depending on your answers, you're different types of people so you've been doing it like that and then and then when you actually now you've got 25 people do you feel like you are a family business well we started off and we always called ourselves a family but as you grow bigger it's harder and harder to maintain that family feel Mm. and we're very conscious about that but going back to the color works it also helps people understand their their colleagues so what type of person they are and what sort of you know things float their boat and what things upset them. So they so can they all go around with little triangles on them or little badges Well, when on we them. did the thing, we did it as a company day. Yeah. And ah. everyone had their little badges. So did, did that actually turn into far more em- empathy within your Absolutely. work? Absolutely. It's been really, really, course. really good. And I would advise any small or medium company to do so. How lovely. Will you be off to do your little charts then, Alistair? Maybe when we've got 25 people. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to the Voom podcast from Virgin Media Business, the ultra-fast fibre broadband company. Coming up in the show, we'll be hearing from our brand-new Voom reporter, Chris Reid, who's out on the road with the Voom bus, meeting entrepreneurs across the country. But as we're talking property and housing today, we thought we'd better take a look at the property market itself – Buying and selling houses is an age-old industry, but how do you make a dent in the world of estate agencies? Chris Reed spoke to the founders of The Modern House to find out how they managed to disrupt the market. So I'm here in the London office of Modern House Estate Agency with founders Matt Gibbert and Albert Hill. Hi there. Great to meet you both. You know, what's very clear is that this is not a run-of-the-mill estate agency. Um, What is Modern House and uh, how did it come about? So the Modern House is an estate agency, but we handle sales all over the UK from one central base. So whereas the conventional model for an estate agency is open a shop on a high street and try and dominate that local area, we have come up with quite a different model, which is it's not so much about the location, it's more about the quality of the house itself. So we act as a filter for the most exciting, inspiring, beautiful homes on the market at any one time. So Albert and I decided, well, you know, how should we reimagine this industry from the beginning? How should how should it be done better, frankly? So we better than standard estate agents. I know, I know. Well it, that that was partly why we took on this industry, I think, was there was a lot of room for improvement. We've recruited a team from 
outside the industry. These people, are, they're very bright, university-educated people, a lot of them a lot cleverer than we are, and they've come from all sorts of backgrounds like magazines and, you know, one's come from Twitter, all sorts of very, very interesting personalities, and they have chosen to work for the modern house because of what it represents in the industry, not because they set out to sell houses. That's been very affirming for us, I think, is to have this really interesting group of people coming together with a collective spirit. Someone uh, described us recently as a curated platform for property, which I thought sounded a bit snappier than estate agents. But uh, where we are now is that estate agency is kind of boiled down to a sort of lowest common denominator. There isn't much value in an estate agency, but what we can do is we can go out to a market of people that are not purely just driven by punching in a postcode into an aggregating site. They want to be inspired by something that they see online and then work out if they want to live in that location. So it's a completely topsy-turvy way of looking at things. But it completely suits the way people live nowadays. You know, we're so much more footloose with, the. you know, obviously um, the internet has completely changed everyone's lives. You don't have to be so hooked into a location for work as, as tended to be the driver for moving. So, you know, all, all those sorts of things are happening. And, and um, going back to this curated platform, uh, yeah. please, I mean, you both were journalists, very successful journalists in property and uh, interiors for... Uh, mm for a long time so it's, that's, yeah. it's quite a jump isn't it from uh, writing about property to selling um, it or um, styling property well, to selling it yeah it was a bigger jump back when we did it in 2005 back then it was certainly very much like you do business over here and you do magazines over here and you know those two bits of expertise will never meet but it was fantastic, actually, that we had absolutely no background in the state agency because there was no, you know, what they call entrenched wisdom. We could literally start from the beginning about how we would want to be, um, you know, dealt with by a state agency, not with how industry had accepted it. I mean, you're, you're at the, the top end of the business. I mean, some, some, some beautiful properties on the, mm-hmm. on the website. A business, I guess, with very few startup costs, except having to build relationships with some very choosy people. I mean, how did, <laughs> how did, that, how did you get your first properties on, on the books? Well, um, that was a little bit of uh, uh, bluster, I suppose. Um, it, it so happened that I knew of a property, a fantastic property that had been struggling to sell in Dulwich in London for a while. I had the idea, I managed to get the guy's phone number, I phoned up and I said to him, I've got this company that specialises in interesting you know, architecture and design estate agency. And he said, oh, fantastic, I've been waiting for someone like you. At which point Matt and I desperately scurried around <laughs> to, to get the website up and running, to get some material up and running. And, and that's how it started, really. And then the press absolutely loved the idea because yeah. it was such a staid industry back then. There was nothing exciting or, you know, we sprinkled a little bit of colour onto it. And that's how it all, all started. How do, you, how do you instill that sort of culture, that pride 
you know, you're in a lovely designed office, but there's no mm. table tennis tables or all that, no, all no, that no. stuff that's associated with trendy startup culture. Well, I think that, you know, if we're talking about surveys that you often see with estate agents coming, well, in fact, the one I read said that estate agents are the least trusted profession in, um, you know, they also say that moving house is always in the top three most stressful moments of per- uh, periods of people's life. And so our staff take a great deal of pride in you know, enabling people to have the most comfortable experience they can possibly have through that stressful period. Um, so we tend to get quite conscientious people who enjoy that side as much as the sales side. So it's kind of... Um, it's, it's not hiring salespeople who just want to get people through the sale as quickly as possible because also we, we swim in a relatively small pond and word of mouth is just so important. So people have got to come out the other end thinking, my goodness, you know, these people actually really helped me do this. You're breaking down some of the traditional hierarchies associated with this and, and making something which is, you know, flatter, more horizontal. How, I mean, you know, where does where does the, you know, the impetus for some of those quite radical changes come from? I th- again, it's just how Matt and I wanted to do things from the beginning. And we looked at the model of the traditional estate agency, which was so kind of dog-eat-dog. Dog. And, and the crazy thing is within an estate agency, everyone's competing against themselves because it's all about commission. So everyone tramples all over each other to basically get buyers. And we just, well, A, from a personal perspective, we didn't want to work in that type of environment, you know, quite simply. But B, we didn't think that was the most sensible way to to get the most money for our vendors, for our sellers, and that's, you know, and that's what it's all about. You're listening to The Boom Podcast, and thanks there to the Modern House founders, Matt Gibbard and Albert Hill, for sharing their story. Even if you're not looking for a new house, I suggest you still check out their website to see what the fuss is all about. Thank you to Chris Reed too. We'll be hearing more from him later in the show. Right now, back in the studio with me, Arthur Duke, founder of Living Guardians, and Alistair Parvin, the man behind WikiHouse. Alistair, talk to us a little bit more about how you've managed to put WikiHouse's initial projects into action. Because you mentioned you're not just aiming to democratise architecture with open source plans, you're also helping to design methods of production and construction that can help on a local level too. Yeah, and we have a long-term strategy and we have short-term tactics. The whole way that we design, plan and build our built environment is completely backward. Like, you know, it hasn't really changed for at least 100, 200 years. And I don't just mean the physical technologies of the way we build homes, but really the whole stack, the way that we invest in them, the way that we regulate them. And digitization uh, and, and the digital revolution and what's been called the fourth industrial revolution, they have huge potential to really transform it. I think there was a, a McKinsey study a while ago that kind of listed which sectors are the most and least digitized. And there at the bottom were, the very bottom was agriculture and then construction. Oh, really? So, you know, they're, they're kind of incredibly lagging behind. And that has a huge human cost, right? Um, but it also has a huge economic cost. And, and I think and it's the same with, you know, the kind of Guardians program, right? Where there's a kind of a dumbness to the system there's also an opportunity and we see a huge opportunity and the way that we frame it or see that opportunity is that there is a missing sector in housing in the 20th century we were totally dependent on big centralized developers to build our homes for us 
at great cost, whether mm. that was the market or the state. Mm -hmm. Of course, the whole narrative was the state or the market, who should, you know, who should do everything, but who should build our homes. And, you know, one of the things digital technology does is it shifts power to what's called the long tail, right? The, the many small players. That's what Airbnb is, yes. right? Um, that's what kind of YouTube is. And all we see is that same pattern now playing out in the world of physical things and in the world of buildings. And that's actually a really, really interesting and important game changer because it can change the way that we invest and it can change who builds. So our kind of big idea, if you like, is that there's a missing sector in housing, which is called the citizen sector, which is people building homes for themselves. Um, so the phrase, there has to be a dumbness in the market. What was the dumbness in the market for you, Arthur, and for your company as Guardian's? I think it was the fact that uh, you had all these empty buildings sitting there sort of doing nothing and you could use them, A, to protect them at a fraction of the cost of the traditional security guard and give guardians or young professionals an opportunity to live in those buildings whilst whatever the owners are planning to do with them is going on. Coming back to the idea that you're both having to really create disruption within existing industries to make your ideas happen... What would you say to entrepreneurs out there looking to follow suit? Because it must be daunting to have to try and change an old system to get your idea happening. Arthur, let me come to you first. I think you've got to believe in what you're trying to achieve. And, you know, along the way, it's been a, a journey where there's, you're getting knocked back and knocked down and told you can't do it this and you can't do that. And just to, to, to not give up and just keep, keep you know, believing and keep going. How many people told you, you know, you couldn't do what you were doing right now with your guardians? Programs. Um, quite a few, actually. And what makes you get up? Is it your spirit alone or is it a belief in the idea? I think it's a bit of both, actually. Uh, you know, you've got to believe that your, your idea is a good one and that, you know, you want to take, take everyone on and prove them wrong. So a fighting spirit, essentially. Absolutely. What about you, Alistair? <laughs> what would you say? Um, I think if in doubt, start somewhere, right? Because it's really, really easy to kind of look at these big systemic wicked challenges and say that there's nothing that we can do because they're complex. And so there's, there's, there's treading a delicate line between this kind of naive um, hubris of, yeah, we're going to disrupt this industry. And it's mm. like, mm, actually, it's, it's more complex than any one organisation can deal with. Mm. But equally, at the other end, there's a kind of lazy cynicism mm -hmm. that's kind of cool, but actually doesn't help anybody. Uh, and somewhere down the middle, there is a kind of Usefully naive pragmatism that says, <laughs> "Look, let's start. Let's start somewhere, and let's try and make the the minimum viable working version of the future that we see." I think a really good test is even if you're looking at the biggest systemic problem you can see, mm. somewhere there is someone who's bearing the cost right now, and so find them and try and solve their problem for them. And that's not just the way that you kind of get the resources to keep going, but it's also how you kind of test your own. And you find out if you're actually wrong or not. That's really insightful. Arthur, what's next on the agenda for Living Guardians? Is it a steady and continuous expansion or do you have other plans? No, no, I think it's expansion. And um, what has amazed me about the industry is that there's people who've been in property for 20, 30, 40 years and they've never even heard of guardianship from the owner's point of view. I think the, the, from the guardian's point of view that the word is spreading very quickly. But from the actual property owner's point of view... So many people that are still not aware that it even exists. And so when you say expansion, is that just to get the word out there and let more and more people know that we will we'll put guardians in your building? Or Absolutely. What? We've got to get the word out to the property owners. and that, That's the hard bit. What about you, Alistair? 
what's next? Yeah, a bit like we said before, we, we've kind of done, I think we've reached a kind of proof of concept to some extent stage. And so our plan is to try and kind of, yeah, use BuildX to try and test that. Um, and well, how soon is that going to happen? Oh, how, how long is a piece of string? No, uh, we, we've got, we, we have in, in the next few weeks where we're, we'll have our kind of private, private working prototype, but it's very, it's very buggy. So over the next you know, year or so, that's, that's our, our plan is to sort of work on local pilots. Somewhere. And when you say local, are we talking the capital city or are they elsewhere in the so. UK? No, I hope so. Right, I hope, I hope wow. That, I hope there will be as well. If you could travel back in time to the point when you started the company, can you single out one thing that you, in retrospect, think, could have done that a whole lot better? It's always, I mean, no one has ever done anything useful without knockbacks. You know, as I said, I never went to business school. Uh, I don't think any of our, our kind of team are instinctive entrepreneurs. So there's just a lot of basic stuff like as you were saying Arthur you know how you learn to interact with people and mm-hmm. how you know how how you pitch stuff and to whom um that you learn along the way but what i have learned actually is you know there's always someone to ask and ah. don't be afraid yeah. to ask you know there's sort of much more entrepreneurial people than me much cleverer people than me much more successful people than me and surprising they're always quite happy to help On the subject of asking for advice, it's a very important thing for entrepreneurs. But how do you find it? Who do you ask? Well, our new Zoom reporter, Chris Reed, has been out and about in Manchester asking entrepreneurs on the Zoom tour where they get their advice from. Hi, Nikki. This week we've been in Manchester with the Voom tour bus. We've had two days talking to entrepreneurs, pitching ideas, all sorts of experts and sharing knowledge. One of the things that people have really picked up on is the role for advice and support and mentoring. So one of the things that I've been doing is talking to some of the people here to find out what sort of advice they value, where they get it from, what sort of advice they'd like. My name is Angela Middleton and I have a company called Middleton Murray. So hi, my name's Alex. I'm one of the co-founders of Go Sweat. My name's Herb Kim. I'm the founder of a company called Thinking Digital. I think it's critical for small businesses to have advisors because very often, you know, when someone starts a business, they have got a lot of talent and they're a very talented operator within the particular industry that they've selected, but they don't necessarily have the range of business skills that they need to really grow a business. Um, And why should they? Because it is an entirely different skill set. And so to have a mentor, to let them realize that there's no one magic answer, that it is a whole range of activities that you need to address in order to grow a business successfully uh, is is really critical for them. One of the things for me in the last four years has been about the value about really connecting with experts, uh, whether that be Virgin Media or their partners uh, or other businesses. And how important that is just because so much of the kind of secret sauce about how you make a business successful is not written in books. You know, it's not in magazine articles. You know, it's not in videos even, right? It's about people probably building relationships. And then when you've built a relationship, people then say, well, this is what really happened. One of the best things about working for a startup is millions of other people, or maybe hundreds of thousands of other people work in a similar position. So we go out and network with different people. We pitch at different events. You meet people through them. A lot of the time, the people you're pitching alongside are at similar stage to you. So you can chat to them about their problems. Also alongside that, you've got to leverage every kind of connection you have. Um, so for example, my brother runs a startup, so I can chat to people that work at his company, maybe chat to his investors, and just generally use your network to try and leverage everything you can. Um, if you don't ask, you don't get. 
there, um, but always be aware that some people want more than you can offer them. Obviously, if you're in the startup phase, you know, you're, you're going to be hungry for knowledge, right, and advice about how to do things. But I think the important thing is that even if you are in some way successful, if you're, you know, say, a scale-up or medium-sized business, if you stop learning, it's almost the first step towards dying, right? You know, you got to keep growing. You know, I speak to business now all the time, and even, they always thought, well, if we get to 50 employees, I feel like that's a really, but the, the, the difference is that when you get to 50 employees, the problems are actually very different. You are successful, obviously, and you have 50 employees, and you've got, obviously, enough revenue and business to, to, to cover that, but you, then you've got a whole other set of problems, and oftentimes, some of the best businesses die not through lack of money, but actually through the problems success. So I think it's actually critical, uh, if, even if you're doing well, to, to make sure you continue to invest in your learning. Well, you know, you, you never know all the answers as a business owner yourself anyway, so it's astounding what you can learn by just talking to people and hearing their journey, where they've come from, you know, and they prompt you to think when they ask you questions because, uh, you know, they probably will ask you questions you haven't thought about the answers to. But also I think that when you get to a point where, you know, you're reasonably successful in your business and it's going how you want it to, um, you know, you want to share some of that expertise and you want to help people to maybe shortcut um, some of the, the things that maybe took you a long time yourself to actually achieve um, and just help them along the way. And it's obviously, it, it's great, it makes you feel great when you can see that something you've said has inspired somebody and really helped them. Thanks very much to all of the entrepreneurs up in Manchester. We've had some great one-to-one -one advice, some great pitching as well. One thing I think I've really picked up is the value of advice. Don't be afraid to ask around. Don't be shy. Don't be uh, afraid to approach your mentor. And um, given that offering advice is what we're all about, um, I would like to give a big shout out to the Voom Pioneers Network, such up Voom Pioneers online, and uh, you will be connected with uh, like-minded entrepreneurs and business owners who will be only too happy to give and uh, receive advice uh, from their problems. So that's it from a uh, slightly drizzly Manchester afternoon. We've had a fantastic couple of days on the bus. Back to you in the studio, Nikki. Thank you to Chris Reed and all our entrepreneurs in Manchester there. If you want more information about where the Big Voom bus will be next, it's Birmingham on the 28th of September, Cardiff on the 5th of October, but you can just search for Voom Tour to find out more. Back to the studio now and my guests, Arthur Duke and Alistair Parvin. Before we finish, we're nearly at the end of the show, I've just got a couple of final questions for you both. Uh, so what are you most proud of so far in terms of your business journey, Alistair? Um, I'm proud that we're still going. We're still working at it because, as uh, Robert Louis Stevenson said, it's better to travel, hopefully, than to arrive. <laughs> um, uh, I'm also, you know, I, I'm basically whenever I see it working, I get really proud. And sometimes it's really funny because there's lots of people who spend hours and hours filling your inbox and then someone, sometimes someone else will say, we'll just send you a tweet with a photo of a house they built. Oh, and it's like, whoa. So rewarding. Know, right, and that's an amazing, that's an amazing, amazing moment. Um, and so there have been a couple of projects like that that, um, you know, as you can probably tell, we're quite cerebral. We're really a bunch of policy geeks who accidentally, <laughs> you know, who accidentally steered into... <laughs> you know, into the wrong sector. So what's really nice is when people are using these tools and they just get it mm. straight away. There's yeah. no, you don't need to write anything. I mean, and I think, I mean, without getting too kind of generalistic about it, certainly it's true in, in housing and property, but 
Uh, I think it's probably true in a huge areas of our economy now. There is clearly a, a large way in which a lot of our systems are out of step in the way that they work with the way humans work and the planet works. Well, I uh, see and what's what... quite nice is to prototype a different economy or a different way of doing and then seeing that actually it's completely in tune with how people actually want to be and work. Yeah. What about you, Arthur? The thing that you are most proud of about your business so far? So far. Uh, I think, well, two, two aspects. Obviously, you know, we, we've grown quite substantially uh, as a company in terms of employees. I think 18 months ago there were six of us today, there's 25. So obviously giving people, you know, jobs is, is a nice, is, is very satisfactory. And also um, gi- allowing the guardians the opportunity to further their careers because a lot of them have said to me, you know, without living in one, as a guardian, I wouldn't be able to save money and I wouldn't be able to do X, Y, and Z with my career. And what is, do you think, the best thing about your actual job, Alistair? Uh, what I like most about my actual job on a comp- completely selfish level mm-hmm. is um, I like the ability to move within one day from big macro policy conversations or technology conversations about what digitization means for the world of insurance or investment or whatever it is to something very, very tangible, like where, how, what's the optimum way, how do you optimise the positioning of screws in a, in a building system right. through to then going and then hanging out with someone who's actually doing the thing and, and you know, hearing about the way that they feel about it. So that, for me personally, um, that's the most rewarding thing is that we're kind of working through a, a vertical, if you like. That, that it's very thin vertical, but it passes through the whole stack mm. of our homes and how we produce them. Yes. Um, and, um, yeah, it's a good recipe for not getting bored. Respect you, Arthur. I think it's similar. Every day is different. Um, you know, every, every day has its challenges. Um, and I've, get, I've got to meet some fantastic people along the way. Fantastic, you two. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to my guests in the Boom studio today, Arthur Duke, founder of Living Guardians, and Alistair Parvin, the man behind WikiHouse. Also, a big thank you to Matt Gibbard and Albert Hill for sharing their story of the modern house. And to all our entrepreneurs in Manchester, along with our Voom special correspondent, Chris Reid. If you want to find out more about Voom and Voom Fibre, the new business broadband network, just head to virginmediabusiness.co.uk slash Voom. We'll see you in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Hello, Voom listeners. If you've enjoyed this podcast, why not try Future Visions, the new series from Virgin exploring the surreal world of tomorrow through the finest minds of today. Imagine the world in 20 years' time. Is it possible to predict the future? Throughout this series, we've been exploring AI, robotics, hyper-reality, all of the things we need to know in order to make our businesses thrive. Far more tantalising than the dreams of the science fiction writers. Can you imagine what the world will look like in 20 years? We will have flying cars. We will have head transplants, brain-to-computer transfers. All those things will be quite normal. Your intent will be understood and AI will be used to work out. Well, it will become instinctual. Too many people feel the future is something that happens without us, rolls us over in its wake. And I'm all about, this is the future I want to see and I'm going to f***ing make it happen. So join me, Natalie Campbell. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. For the Future Visions podcast, subscribe now.